here. And we're going to start on page 1105 with Acts 24. And we're just going to read through it together here and then share a few thoughts. Everybody there? Everybody have a Bible? Anybody not have a Bible? If you need a Bible, there's probably some around on chairs. People can hand you one. All right, we'll jump in. Acts 24. Five days later, the high priest Ananias went down to Caesarea with some of the elders and a lawyer named Tertullus, and they brought their charges against Paul before the governor. When Paul was called in, Tertullus presented his case before Felix. We've enjoyed a long period of peace under you, and your foresight has brought about reforms in this nation. Everywhere and in every way, most excellent Felix, we acknowledge this with profound gratitude. But in order not to weary you further, I would request that you be kind enough to hear us briefly. We have found this man to be a troublemaker, stirring up riots among the Jews all over the world. He is a ringleader of the Nazarene sect, and even tried to desecrate the temple, so we seized him. By examining him yourself, you will be able to learn the truth about all these charges we are bringing against him. The Jews joined in the accusation, asserting that these things were true. When the governor motioned for him to speak, Paul replied, I know that for a number of years you have been a judge over this nation, so I gladly make my defense. You can easily verify that no more than 12 days ago I went up to Jerusalem to worship. My accusers did not find me arguing with anyone at the temple or stirring up a crowd in the synagogues or anywhere else in the city. And they cannot prove to you the charges they are now making against me. However, I admit that I worship the God of our fathers as a follower of the way, which they call a sect. I believe everything that agrees with the law and that is written in the prophets, and I have the same hope in God as these men, that there will be a resurrection of both the righteous and the wicked. So I strive always to keep my conscience clear before God and man. After an absence of several years, I came to Jerusalem to bring my people gifts for the poor and to present offerings. I was ceremonially clean when they found me in the temple courts doing this. There was no crowd with me, nor was I involved in any disturbance. But there are some Jews from the province of Asia who ought to be here before you and bring charges if they have anything against me. Or these who are here should state what crime they found in me when I stood before the Sanhedrin. Unless it was this one thing I shouted as I stood in their presence. It is concerning the resurrection of the dead that I am on trial before you today. Then Felix, who was well acquainted with the way, adjourned the proceedings. When Lysias the commander comes, he said, I will decide your case. He ordered the centurion to keep Paul under guard, but to give him some freedom and permit his friends to take care of his needs. Several days later, Felix came with his wife, Drusilla. He was a Jewish. Jewish. He sent for Paul and listened to him as he spoke about faith in Christ Jesus. As Paul discoursed on righteousness, self-control, and the judgment to come, Felix was afraid and said, That is enough for now. You may leave. When I find it convenient, I will send for you. At the same time, he was hoping that Paul would offer him a bribe. So he sent for him frequently and talked with him. When two years had passed, Felix was succeeded by Portius Festus. But because Felix wanted to grant a favor to the Jews, he left Paul in prison. Three days after arriving in the province, Festus went up from Caesarea to Jerusalem, where the chief priests and Jewish leaders appeared before him and presented the charges against Paul. They urgently requested Festus as a favor to them to have Paul transferred to Jerusalem for they were preparing an ambush to kill him along the way. Festus answered, Paul is being held at Caesarea, and I myself am going there soon. Let some of your leaders come with me and press charges against the man there if he has done anything wrong. After spending eight or ten days with them, he went down to Caesarea, and the next day he convened the court and ordered that Paul be brought before him. 
When Paul appeared, the Jews who had come down from Jerusalem stood around him, bringing many serious charges against him, which they could not prove. Then Paul made his defense. I have done nothing wrong against the law of the Jews, or against the temple, or against Caesar. Festus, wishing to do the Jews a favor, said to Paul, Are you willing to go up to Jerusalem and stand trial before me there on these charges? Paul answered, I am now standing before Caesar's court, where I ought to be tried. I have not done any wrong to the Jews, as you yourself know very well. If, however, I am guilty of doing anything deserving death, I do not refuse to die. But if the charges brought against me by these Jews are not true, no one has the right to hand me over to them. I appeal to Caesar. After Festus conferred with his counsel, he declared, You have appealed to Caesar. To Caesar you will go. All right. Pretty good little chunk there, a few verses. But last week, Brad set up, he, he set this up with chapter 23. And he talked about Paul. And he talked about the defense before the Sanhedrin that this was referring to, which was just a group of religious men and how they almost tore him to pieces. They were fighting between themselves, even. The Jews were. Whether it was all over the resurrection, like he said there in, in verse uh, 23, that it, was, it is concerning the resurrection of the dead that I'm on trial before you today. Because some of the Pharisees and the Sadducees, they believe different things about the resurrection. And so it caused this fight to break out. And as Brad shared, they almost tore him to pieces before the commander, Lysias there, pulled him out and, and transferred him to Caesarea. And Brad shared last week how when they transferred him, it wasn't just a, a little group of people transferring him. It was a lot of soldiers that went with him to keep him safe and to protect him and get him the governor Felix there. And that's where we picked up today. But first of all, I just want to share with you a few, a few things about Caesarea to give you a little idea of what Caesarea was like. I have a, a little history on here. I'm just going to read it to you. So think about this, and then I'm, I'm going to show you some pictures of what it, what it looks like today. But Caesarea was a city built on the Mediterranean coast of Judea by Herod the Great between 22 and 10 B.C. The beautiful marble city and just... The, mar- the beautiful marble city, just 65 road miles from Jerusalem, served as Judea's major seaport and as the Roman administrative center. The Roman governor, customs collector, and provincial finance officer were all headquartered in Caesarea, along with numerous troops. They often called the city Caesarea Maritima, or of the sea, to distinguish it from the inland Caesarea Philippi to the north, and from other cities in the empire named in honor of Augustus Caesar. Five major roads led to Caesarea, including the great seacoast trade route between Tyre and Egypt, and the fields on the plains surrounding it were famous for their fertility. Some 50,000 people lived there in the A.D. 40s and 50s, the time of this. Fresh water was supplied to the city by a six-mile-long tunnel cut through the rock of Mount Carmel to channel water from underground springs. The water was carried another six and a half miles by an aqueduct constructed along the shore. Caesarea was taken by the Muslims in A.D. 641, and it was destroyed in A.D. 1291. So a few pictures here to give you ideas. Some people, I think Sarah's been there. Has anybody besides Sarah been there? The Millers have been, Greg's been there. So here's some pictures. This is just an aerial picture from the sky of the coastline there at Caesarea. Another picture just of the coastline. Some of the old things that were there that they've uncovered. The harbor. This is really interesting. These are the aqueducts that they're talking about. The aqueducts that were six and a half mile long to carry the water, which I thought was really cool. That's pretty amazing technology back then. And then just another picture of it there. So, so that's Caesarea. That's where this is taking place. Um, and then we, I want to give you a little background on Governor Felix. When I read this, 
it really helped me understand, uh, really understand better what what was going on here in this chapter and and what uh, what Paul was facing here. So here's a here's a little description of, of Felix. It says the Roman governor Felix had enjoyed a meteoric rise from slavery to a position of political prominence in the Roman Empire. As to his personal life, he was grossly immoral. At the time of his appointment to be governor of the province of Judea, he was a husband of three royal ladies. While in office, he fell in love with Drusilla, who was married to Azizus, king of Emesa. According to Josephus, a marriage was arranged through Simon the sorcerer from Cyprus. He was a cruel despot, as is evidenced by the fact that he arranged the assassination of a high priest named Jonathan, who criticized him for his misrule. So Felix wasn't the best guy ever. <laughs> you can pick that up from that. Felix was not a good guy. He was an immoral guy. He was, his life was full of sin, and all these things were going on. So you can see he's an evil guy. Definitely an evil guy, caught up in all these different sins. So, and that was the man that Paul had to stand in front of. Paul was standing in front of this guy, probably knowing all these things about, uh, knowing these things about Felix, that he wasn't a very good man. Put yourself in Paul's shoes. What do you think he was thinking? probably wondered, why in the world am I in front of this guy? Of all the people in the Roman province, why am I standing before this Governor Felix, who's a really bad guy? How in the world could this guy bring about justice when he's pretty much the definition of injustice? Like, he's doing all these wrong things and he's getting away with it. I know, I know that's what I would have thought. I'd have been going, hey, this is a, supposed to be a judge. Like, what in the world? This is, is not fair at all. But it didn't even seem to phase Paul. Paul didn't complain about it. You don't see him go... You know, you don't see him talking about, about Felix and all the bad things he's done. He just, he just shares, and he shares boldly. We also see at the beginning there that, that Ananias hired a, a man named Tertullus. Tertullus was a Roman lawyer at the time, and he was just there to present the Jews' case. And I just love how, how Tertullus starts out his, his thing here. We look again in verses 2 through 4. He says, When Paul was called in, Tertullus presented his case before Felix. He says, we have enjoyed a long period of peace under you, and your foresight has brought about reforms in the nation. Everywhere and in every way, most excellent Felix, we we acknowledge this with profound gratitude. But in order to not weary you further, I request that you be kind enough to hear us briefly. Wow. He was piling on some flattery, kissing up. He was doing everything he could. And I think he was doing that because he knew he didn't have a very solid case. He knew he didn't have a, the proof to prove that Paul had done these things. They were trying to just get it, just force through on emotion. Like all these people, oh, he's a bad guy, oh, he's a bad guy, kill him. Oh, okay, <laughs> let's do it. <laughs> you know, it wasn't, it, there wasn't a solid case, just, just like Paul points out here. <clears throat> so there's pretty much, and then as we go further and we look at, at what Turles is, is saying and what Ananias is saying here, there's pretty much four claims that they, that they put against Paul. Four, four claims, four distinct things. The first one is that Paul was a troublemaker. We see that they're trying to make it out that Paul's a troublemaker. Number two, the second claim that, that Turtleus gives is that Paul was stirring up riots among Jews all over the world. I like how he put all over the world in there. It's kind of interesting. All over the world. It was a little part of the world, but he's doing it everywhere. It's all over the world. And then the third thing was Paul was a ringleader of the Nazarene sect. That was his, his third claim and thing that was, that was wrong with Paul. And then the fourth thing was that Paul tried to desecrate the temple. That was the fourth claim that they made against Paul. But next we see, as we we went on down through it there a little bit, we see that Paul defends himself and he very methodically answers all four of those questions. If you've paid attention and you you were seeing there in the verses. For the first thing, he says he went to Jerusalem to worship 
and not cause trouble. He said he wasn't going there as a troublemaker at all. That's totally false. Number two, he said at no time was he found arguing with anyone or stirring up trouble, which again is truth, and again goes right to that argument that they were saying he was stirring up riots. He never stirred up a riot, not once when he was there. Number three, they, they said he was a ringleader of the Nazarene sect, and he said, yeah, I am. <laughs> I am a member of the way. I am. I, I acknowledge worshiping God and believing all the things which are written in the Old Testament. He acknowledged that. It was true. And then the fourth thing is he said he was ceremonially clean and alone in the temple courts at the time when they took him. Whereas they said that he was there and he was trying to desecrate the temple and, and do all these evil things. So if we keep going through Acts there, we see, we continue through Acts, we see the effect that Paul's defense had on Governor Felix. We, we see where he, he actually gets, um, he gets to talk to him a little more. And it says that several days later he came back with his wife, Drusilla, and he wanted to hear more about Paul and what Paul believed about his faith in Jesus Christ. It would have been really easy for Paul to be non-confrontational there. Again, this is the guy that was going to determine whether he went to prison, stayed in prison, got killed, or was let free. It would have been really easy for Paul to be non-confrontational, but he wasn't. He shared what was on his heart, and he didn't beat around the bush. It says that he shared about righteousness, the thing that Governor Felix wasn't. <laughs> Governor Felix was very unrighteous. Self-control, another very big area in, in Felix's life that he was struggling with. Felix had no self-control. He had three wives. He was in an adulterous relationship. He married another man's wife. <clears throat> and then in the judgment to come, Paul just shared on those things. And he shared boldly about it. Uh, remember how, um, how I shared at the beginning that Felix was that way? That he was all those different things. He shared it strongly, even in the face of those things. He knew that these were areas that, that Felix was struggling with, and yet he shared boldly. Sharing things like that with a sinner, with someone who's lost, and making it very clear what they're earning because of that sin, is an effective way to share the gospel. It's a very effective way for them to see where they're wrong and to see that, hey, God's over here. He's perfect. I'm over here. I am not perfect at all. And it helps them to, to see and that they need to repent and that they need to turn to God. But we need to make sure, though, that we're not just doing that and we're sharing boldly truth but we're not loving on them. We have to season it with love. We have to season it with grace so we don't alienate the person from us. We don't want the person to just hate us and leave. What good does that do? What good does it do to share someone's sin with them and then never see them again? That, that doesn't help. We need to share God's love with them. Paul didn't alienate Governor Phoenix here and we see that because it says that he talked to him frequently for the next two years. That Felix kept sending for him and kept talking to him. And, and even though that was probably a lot to try and get bribes from him, he still was talking to him. He didn't just shut him out or have him killed immediately or anything. So Paul definitely had to have, have shared it in a loving way. Then at the beginning of 25, we see a new man come into the picture. Portius Festus took over for the governor, for Governor Felix. And again, the Jews right away, right away, right after he became the Jews, again tried to have him transferred. And they tried to have him transferred because they wanted to kill him. They still wanted to kill Paul. This is two years later. They're still this angry at Paul and wanting him to be dead. But Festus must have found out about the plans, most likely, because he didn't have him transferred. He told them to come with him and go down to Caesarea. And, and so we see that happen there. And then they bring they again, they come, they share all their things again. Serious accusations, but again, none of them could be proved. So Festus wanted to appease the Jews. Because Festus knew, on, and I think Felix knew as well at the time, that if he had the Jews on his side, he was the governor of that area. 
And if he could get the major religious group to be behind him, it was going to make it a lot easier to rule on that land instead of having them against him and fighting him. So both of these guys wanted to appease the Jews. And, and so instead of, instead of just giving in to them, uh, well, not giving in to them, but with believing Paul and knowing that Paul was true, and they, they probably both knew this. They knew there was nothing here. I can't hold this guy. I have nothing against him. But instead they just kept holding Paul, and they kept him there. And so, again, they, they asked if Paul would be, he asked Paul if he'd be willing to go to Jerusalem. He said, will you go to Jerusalem and stand trial? And Paul knew, again, if he traveled, any time he was traveling, he was, they were going to probably try and ambush him and kill him. But, and so he knew that was going to happen, and so he appealed to Caesar. And it's time he appealed to Caesar. We see it there in the, the last verse, in 12 there. He conferred with his, with his counsel. He conferred with his legal advisors, essentially, to figure out what that meant. And he decided that, that, well, if you appeal to Caesar, you're going to Caesar. Like, I, I, need to, I have to send you to Caesar. And so Paul knew that he was, he was going to go to Caesar. And it's just kind of cool to see that God had a plan. God had a plan from the beginning. He told Paul he was going to go to Rome. He said, you're going to speak for me in Rome. And, and to see how it came about. that Paul was, Paul was an innocent guy. Paul was innocent. He could have just let him go. But through all these circumstances, he ends up going, getting eventually sent to Rome, which we'll cover in the next several weeks. But it's just really cool to see how God brought about that situation and to see how he can use these things. All right, so that was, that was kind of a, a brief overview of what we went through. But this morning I want to I go back to verse 16. I want to share with you some thoughts on, on verse 16. Let's, let's read verse 16 again together. It says, So I strive always to keep my conscience clear before God and before man. One of Brad's points last week, I think it was his very first point, is that we need to have a clean and sharpened conscience before God to be greatly used as a witness. I've been thinking about this all week. I've been thinking about it as I read this. And what does that mean? What does it mean to have a clear conscience? What does it mean to have a good conscience? How can we as believers keep our conscience clean and good? The dictionary gives this definition of the word conscience. It says, The sense of consciousness of the moral goodness or blameworthiness of one's own conduct, intentions, or character, together with a feeling of obligation to do right or be good. Again, it's the sense or consciousness of the moral goodness or blameworthiness of one's own conduct, intentions, or character, together with a feeling of obligation to do right or be good. We can see from the Bible there's a lot of different places that it talks about consciences. There's, it says we can have good consciences, just like it says here in Acts 23. It says that also in 1 Timothy 1. It says we can have a clear conscience. It says that in Acts 24, in 1 Timothy 3, in 2 Timothy 1, and in Hebrews 13. It says we can have a guilty conscience in Hebrews 10. It says we can have a corrupted conscience in Titus 1. It says we can have a weak conscience in 1 Corinthians 8. Or it says we can have a seared conscience in 1 Timothy 4. So there's different, different things that can happen with our conscience. Now when I, I was trying to think all week, I was like, what, what do I think of when I think of the word conscience or my conscience? And the first thing I could think of was this. <laughs> do you get, everybody know who those are? Calvin and Hobbes? Everybody know who Calvin and Hobbes are? That was a cartoon comic strip that I read a lot when I was a kid. If you don't know who they are, let me set it up for you. Uh, they quit making a comic strip again a couple years ago. You can't find them anymore. Yeah, I mean, you can go buy the books, but I think I've seen Jeremy has some or somebody has some. <clears throat> but Calvin was a little boy with a big imagination. 
That's, that's the way he was in the comic strip. He had a stuffed tiger named Hobbes. So he was a stuffed tiger, but the tiger came alive in the comic strip by Calvin's imagination. Like Calvin's imagination would always bring him alive, and they always were doing these adventures together and doing different things. But if you really noticed when you were reading it, Hobbes played Calvin's conscience a lot. Um, he was always the first one to speak up and say, hey, should we do this? <laughs> and then most of the time they did it anyway. <laughs> Even though it was wrong or they were going to destroy something or whatever. But, but Hobbes played his conscience. And he, he really was always just pointing that you'd always see when Calvin was like, we should go burn something down. And Hobbes would be like, I don't know about that. And then, boom, they'd go do it. And they'd both get in trouble. And it was really funny. I think that's what makes it good about it. But um, another, another one that I thought of was this. Tom and Jerry. I actually saw the Thatchers watching this the other day. The kids were watching a few of the cartoons. But uh, there's quite a few episodes in, in Tom and Jerry. I watched it when I was a kid where you'd see the little, you'd see either the little Tom or the little Jerry on their shoulders, one of them being a little angel and one being a little, little devil and trying to convince them to do the right thing or to do the wrong thing, whichever. And so, I, you know, when I think of those, I go, oh, well, that's, that's kind of what your conscience is. It's that thing that speaks to you. Uh, should I do the good thing? Should I not? What's, what's in my head? So I think both those examples help me to understand maybe just a little bit better what our battle is against our conscience. We always have, the, we're constantly tempted by the things around us, by sin, by evil, that to be guilty, to have those other consciences that it, talked, that it talks about in the Bible, to have a guilty conscience, a corrupted conscience, a weak conscience, a seared conscience. We're tempted to act harshly to people around us, to be rude, to be obnoxious, to think impure thoughts when we see certain things. But it's up to us, as Paul said, to strive always to keep our conscience clear before God and man. So I have three steps, three things that I think help us to keep that conscience clear. And the first one is just that verse. Strive to keep your conscience clear before God first, and then man. I I think the order there is really important. You notice that it's God and man. It doesn't say man and God. It says God and man. And I think that's really important. I think we can catch ourselves sometimes so much easier to keep our conscience clear before man. And I think that's because we're around each other so much. We see each other. We, we know when we're around someone and we've done something and it, it, it wears on us. And we go, oh, man, I've got this thing hanging out there. I shouldn't have said that. And I'm by these people and they probably know I did. And we just have this constant thought in our head of, oh, these people are here. But for some reason, it's a lot harder for us. In my mind, maybe it's a lot harder for just for me to keep my conscience clear before God because I don't see him every day. Like, I don't see him walking. He's not there. He's there. But he's not with, you know, he's not like a person standing right there that I'm like, oh. And so it's, it's really hard. But we've got to make sure that we, we are really clear on that and that we're not struggling with temptation. You know, when we're, we think we're all alone, sometimes we think we're all alone. We're not. We've got to remember God's there. And we've got to keep our conscience clear, even when other people aren't there around us, like our brothers and sisters. He sees us every minute of every day, and even when others aren't there. We need to make sure that we strive to keep a clear conscience and not give in to temptation. And again, first, it's got to be both those areas. It's got to be with God and with man, but first with God. Second thing is don't try to keep your conscience clear by yourself. If we attempt to fight the battle of keeping a clear conscience by ourselves, we're not going to win. I really like Hebrews 2.18. It says, because he himself suffered when he was tempted, he is able to help those who are being tempted. The he there in that verse, give it a little context, is Jesus Christ. We have someone that we can turn to when we're being tempted that can truly help us, that can truly give us the strength that we need and the the wisdom we need to overcome that temptation. We aren't in the battle alone unless we choose to be. 
That's the only time we're in the battle alone. We simply have to seek Christ for help. We also need to surround ourselves with other men and women to fight the battle. In Ecclesiastes 4, 9-12, it says, Two are better than one, because they have a good return for their work. If one falls down, his friend can help him up. But pity the man who falls and has no one to help him. Also, if two lie down together, they will keep warm. But how can one keep warm alone? Though one may be overpowered, two can defend themselves. A cord of three strands is not quickly broken. Then we need to be in accountability relationships with each other. We need to have brothers and sisters around us that care about us, that are going to call us when we're doing something stupid, when we're doing something that we know we shouldn't be doing, when we're sitting in somebody. We need to have somebody that's willing to just walk up to us and go, hey, bro, you screwed up. I want to help you. Help me. You know, we need those people. We need those people that care that much about us. It needs to be an important relationship that we have. If you're on your own, eventually you're going to wear down, just like those verses said. I mean, if, if you're by yourself, how can you, number one, how can you stay warm? How can you help yourself up when you fall down? An accountability relationship is very simple. It's not a difficult thing. It's not a hard thing. It's just a relationship with a brother or a sister in Christ. You simply share your life. You share things that are going on. You share your struggles. You share your sin with them. You share quiet time thoughts. You do other things together. Maybe it's go on grocery trip runs together or something. Just spend time together and share your life with each other. And by doing that, you're able to share those areas of sin and those areas that can cloud your conscience, that can give you the guilty conscience, that can sear your conscience. And you're able to get them out on the table, which gives you a clear and good conscience. The only way that's going to be effective, though, is if you do this point number three. And that's be transparent with those around you. If you're in these relationships and you're hanging out with brothers and you're doing different things, but you're never sharing your sin that's going on in your life, it, it does no good. It doesn't do any good because it's still hidden from them. They need to be able to see it. You need to be willing to share it. In James 5.16 it says, Therefore, confess your sins to each other and pray for each other so that you may be healed. If we don't share our sin and mistakes with someone, it becomes a very slippery slope quickly. First, it starts with just not sharing the little things. Maybe it's some little area of sin in your life that you don't share. And you go, oh, I don't really want to share that. I, I'm just, I don't know. I don't want them to think less of me because I've, I've sinned in this one area. Well, you, you hold that thing back. And then the next thing you know, you've sinned in that area again or maybe you've taken it a step further down the line. And you don't share that because, well, now I didn't share the first thing, so this thing's even bigger. How am I going to share that? I'm not going to share that. And pretty soon you've, you're starting to hide all these things from the people around you that care about you, that love you. And it becomes, a, it becomes a place where you can easily just be destroyed, where the devil can take you out of the game and can really just destroy your life and everything you have because you weren't just honest. You weren't transparent about everything in your life. Be honest with your accountability partners. If you don't have them, get one. Talk to, talk to me. Talk to Rich. Talk to Brad. Talk to your small group leader. Talk to somebody who brought you here who's in your life. Be accountable with somebody. It's so hard to go through this world, to go through this life alone. It will, it will take you out. It will destroy you. This world's a hard place. There's a lot of sin in it. We've got to be together as a family here. We've got to work together or we're going to be destroyed by it. So this morning we took a look again just at Paul and we looked at his defense before the two Roman governors. We also learned a key lesson from Paul just in having a clear conscience. Something that he shared and Brad shared a few thoughts on in Acts 23 and also in Acts 24. If we try to do this on our own without God's help or without our brothers and sisters, we're not going to be effective. We're not going to be sharp witnesses for God. Only through Christ's help and those accountability relationships will we be effective. 
Will we be able to um, have a clear conscience and be effective for God and for His kingdom? I want to leave you with just this one question. I want you to think about it, and I want you to act on this this week if it's not something you're doing. Are you being accountable with your life, with your decisions, with your sin, with someone today? Is there somebody you have in your life that you're sharing these things with? If not, again, talk to one of us. Talk to the person who brought you. Get in an accountability relationship. Share these things with each other. It's the only way that we're going to run this race for the rest of our lives and not burn out and not get taken out of the game. Let's pray. God, we thank you for your word. God, we thank you for Acts. God, we thank you for Paul and just the man that he was. God, he was a man who strove to keep his conscience clear at every step. God, he didn't want to be taken out of the game. He didn't want to be made ineffective for you. God, we don't either. God, we want to be running for you in 40, 50, 70 years, however long you have for us here on this earth. God, we want to be running hard for you. God, we need to keep our conscience clear. We need to be honest and open with our brothers and sisters. And we need to be honest and open with you, first and foremost. God, help us not to to try and hide things or to put them behind the curtain or or whatever. God, help us to just bring them out in the open. God, we're we're not perfect. God, we know that. God, we have our flesh where we sin. God, we're thankful that you forgave all of that sin. But God, help us not hide it amongst our brothers and sisters and from you. Help us to be open with it, to be honest about our mistakes. And God, we just thank you that you do. Just give us a ton of grace. And God, we just really pray for this group here. God, we pray for this church. God, help us to be more like you in this area and to have consciences that that aren't those words, that aren't guilty, that aren't seared, that aren't weak. God, help us have clear and good consciences. God, we just thank you for this morning. Pray you'd bless the rest of our day. In Jesus' name, amen.